Oh, a life of adventure is gay and free, and danger has its charm. And no pig of spirit will bound his life by the fence of his master's farm. Yet there's no true pig but heaves a sigh at the pleasant thought of the old home sky. Good evening, everybody, or whatever time of day it is. This is Josiah Willits with uh, Freddy Goes to a Podcast. I'm Michael. I'm Ethan, also with Freddy Goes to a Podcast. Well, I'm with it, too. I didn't... I was trying not to bog it down, Ethan. Well, good job. We are all with it, as you can as you can see, listener. As you can and see. And when I say... As you can see with your ear holes. Yes. Uh, okay. Yes. We're off to a great start. <laughs> so, so for today, we are talking about the fifth book in the Freddy the Pig series, and that is The Clockwork Twin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found this one to be pretty enjoyable for a number of reasons. Um, but before we get into... Um, the actual plot and everything within the book. Why don't we stop off for, first at um, Ethan's nostalgia corner? So, Ethan, take it away. Well, I have nothing for this segment, <laughs> uh, which is only because I never read this book as a child. Um, I've, I think I've mentioned before that I definitely did not read every Freddy book, and I certainly did not read what I did read in order. Uh, if children were still diagramming sentences as they were, I assume, when this book came out, uh, that would be a doozy of one that I just <laughs> laid on you. Um, but no, I, I, yeah, I genuinely have never read this book, so I have very little to contribute on sort of the nostalgia corner uh, aspect. I will say I'm sort of glad I never read this book because, and I, I don't want to, like, get too far ahead of our discussion or anything, but I'm just really happy that I encountered everything about this book for the first time as an adult. Awesome. Um, So other than not having anything to say right now, uh, I'm actually pretty okay with the result here. I, I have to say that, I mean, this being our fifth episode and everything, I have been stunned with each book that, even as a grown adult... They are all delightful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and just, I mean, each one I come to, it's just fun to read. And so many little fun plot things that, um, that I mean, are just delightful. I'm definitely editing that portion because I said delightful way too much. Um, How delightful but... is this book, though, Josiah? <laughs> <laughs> I was delighted by it. <laughs> That's how delightful. I'm delighted. Um, <laughs> you're delighted? I'm delighted. Well, I, I would be delighted if you would start off with your history segment, Michael. Sure. Go for it. Well, uh, Freddy and the Clockwork Twin, also called the Clockwork Twin, uh, was published in 1937, uh, just one year after Freddy and Freginald, book four in the series. And this marks ten years after Freddy Goes to Florida. Ten years after the first book is published is is book number five. Uh, and the best I can tell is that it was published under both titles simultaneously, Freddy and the Clockwork Twin and just the Clockwork Twin. 
uh, which is a thing that publishers will sometimes do uh, to try to catch multiple demographics of readers. Um, and if that's the case, I think that's a testament to the growing popularity of the Freddy the Pig brand after a decade, uh, that there was enough of a following, perhaps, to read the book solely based on the Freddy name, uh, while also getting new readers just under the clockwork twin. Um, this volume was dedicated to Bernice Baumgarten, uh, and based on my very limited research, my best guess is that this is Sylvia Bernice Baumgarten, who was a literary agent at the time uh, with Branton Kirkpatrick Publishers, and she was married to Pulitzer Prize-winning author James Gould Cousins. Um, but how Brooks and Baumgarten would have known each other is really anyone's guess. Uh, I'm not even sure that is actually the Baumgarten that this is dedicated to, so if anyone knows more than me or can correct me, I would welcome that. Um, more than I. More, thanks. Oh, uh, <laughs> sorry. I thought you meant anyone correcting you about anything, and so Well, I, I did say ahead. I'd welcome it, so. so... So you can't be mad. I can't. I can't be mad. You've got me. Uh, all right, a couple of other things that are relevant to the book at this time. In the spring of 1936, the Northeast United States was affected by major floods that damaged mills, factories, railroad tracks, bridges, and more, killing 24 people and costing $113 million in 1936 dollars. Uh, there was also a flood on the Ohio River in January of 1937, so... A lot of flooding occurring uh, around uh, the year of this book's writing and publication. Um, as for Clockwork Automata specifically, they were in existence uh, since at least the 19th century, if not the 18th, and possibly even earlier, especially since reference exists in 1001 Nights uh, to lifelike robots and automata, as well as in other fiction through the medieval period and onward. So... Uh, my first instinct was, this is kind of a new thing, but no, it's actually really not. Um, however, by 1937, and this is maybe something that we'll talk about later, uh, the genre of pulp sci-fi was finishing its first decade of popular existence. Uh, and Brooks seems to do some genre hopping through the Freddy the Pig series here, and here he's kind of tapping into some of that uh, pulp sci-fi uh, stuff. Not, maybe not entirely, but at least dipping the toe. Um, also, in the early mid 20th century, farming was starting to change. Whereas the beginning of the century had uh, more than 50% of Americans lived as farmers or in farming communities, by the 30s there was a growth in both spe specialization in farms and mechanization of farming. And so very soon in the 1950s, uh, farms would be pushed to consolidate, eventually creating what we're familiar with today in large industrial farms. So I think we're going to be seeing, as the series progresses, more of these themes of the changes in farmings, uh, in farming growing with the, the future books. Um, uh, small note, cinema had almost completely converted into talkies by this point. The 1930s was known as the sound era of film. Ethan, you probably know more about that than I do. Uh, and finally, the president in 1937 was still Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He's got a ways to go. What year does this come out again? 37. 37. Okay. <coughs> um, um, excuse me. The only thing about cinema is that, like, Charlie Chaplin would make, mm. I want to say, one or two silent films yet. But he was basically the exception because... 
he was already Charlie Chaplin and could do whatever he wanted. Um, but <coughs> other than that, pretty much it would be talkies as far as I'm aware. Mm-hmm. Interesting note, that's also the year that John D. Rockefeller died. Hmm. I, I was wondering about John D. Rockefeller because his name was dropped at one point in the book. And um, mm. in reference to his middle initial, because the oh. initial is a device within the book that's important. Yes. And um, somebody says that the D in John D. Rockefeller, nobody actually knows what it is. It's Davison, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, but, yeah. Fantastic. All right. So, uh, so I just wanted to add one thing as far as uh, clockwork goes. Yes, please. Um, in your researches or, or just in your guys' lives, have you ever heard of the uh, uh, the Mechanical Turk? Mechanical what? Mechanical Turk. Turk. I don't know if I have. Um, I have not. So it, the, the Mechanical Turk dates to uh, the late 1700s. Um, about 1770, it, it pops into the onto the scene, and it was it was called the Mechanical Turk because um, you know people from the Middle East at that time in Europe were often known as Turks. It was kind of a catch-all term. Uh, and this this I was really thinking you were going to say they were all mechanical. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the Mechanical Turk was a was a. Uh, it's classified as a mechanical illusion because it was uh, the the way it was constructed was to imply that it was was an automaton, mm. um, and it it would play chess with people. So the idea was that you were playing chess with a a clockwork man. No, this uh, does sound familiar to me. Yeah, it it pops up in like especially Pulp Fiction, but also literature. I want to say uh, Thomas Pynchon's Mason and Dixon has. Uh, reference to it, among other things, but um, the the reality. So it was it was sort of taken around Europe as this like wonder of technology, but the reality was there was a guy hidden inside it playing chess with uh, with the people that it was you know supposedly p- playing chess with. So it was this early like, example of like a computer playing chess with people before computers were even invented. But it was right. it was uh, very much an illusion. Like uh, like the the talking bust in Don Quixote, yes, very much, very much along in the same tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was constructed in such a way that like a guy could hide inside it, and the the movements and the the you know illusion or the theater of it would make it seem like it was run by clockwork. But right, or um, the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Where's that on TV tropes? Come on. <laughs> We didn't talk about TV tropes yet. I know. Mm. Not on the podcast. Exactly. Um, I feel like we should share with our audience what we're talking about. We, Ethan, what was it that you stumbled upon? Oh, uh, now I've, I've, I've clicked out of it because I wasn't anticipating talking about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was just the, the website tvtropes.com has an extensive... Uh, page for Freddy the Pig. Yes. Um, like, a pretty impressive one, honestly. Yeah. Uh, just listing all the different tropes in uh, in the series, including, uh, as I'm clicking back through to it here, 
Brainy Pig, Brilliant But Lazy, Cardboard Prison, um, mm-hmm. and some other ones that seem like they'd be spoilers for future, uh, mm-hmm. uh, future episodes, but... Luxury yeah, Prison it, Suite. It, <laughs> in in essence, in essence, our thesis of Freddy is always the egg is yeah. recognized. Yeah. by by online scholars now. That's right. Yes, um, <laughs> online scholars, especially uh, online creators scholars. of TV tropes. We yes. uh, we especially uh, figured this out because the first trope on the Freddy page is called Brainy Pig. And when I click through to that and click through to the literature section, every example of a brainy pig, uh, at least in literature on TV tropes, comes after Freddy, uh, implying that he's the earliest example of this trope. Now, speaking of this, we've talked about Wizard of Oz before in reference to this book. And, you know, as I'm thinking about it... it yep. Right, these books, not this book, but yeah, this book series. Um, and like, it's occurring to me that here, I mean, here we do have another one. It's not necessarily a trope that is recognized by TV tropes. I, I haven't looked too thoroughly through there. I should, I should check and see if they've done that. But uh, you know, the 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 secret mastermind behind whatever is the illusion. You know, right? That's here, and it's also in the Wizard of Oz, which. What the book was published in 1900. Okay, yeah. But the movie came out two years after this book came out. I don't think we can credit Freddy as being the egg in that one, though. If the book came out that much earlier. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, depending upon the, I mean, depending upon if you want to reference the movie or, yeah. because I mean, the mechanic within the book is slightly different than the way it works in the movie, isn't it? Um, I haven't. I've skimmed the book a little bit, but I don't know. I admit I haven't read the book. I just was. I, I haven't that. either, so I don't know. I think I think that our like our like slight ignorance gives us enough authority to say <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. All right. Certainly, we all agree. Certainly. Yep. Freddy is the egg. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's go ahead and talk about the book, shall we? Yes, please. So let's talk about the plot. And the roads grow steep and long A treadmill round where no peace is found If one follows it over long And however they wander Both pigs and men Are always glad to get home again so what I will say about this book is that um, Walter R. Brooks does a wonderful job once again on expanding upon the universe that he's already created. We're introduced to a number of new characters. Um, probably there are there are a number of notable ones, um, maybe like five or six that I would probably point to as being really key players. But really, it's kind of hinges on three new characters, um, and that would be Adoniram. Um, He's a young boy that is, lives in a home that mistreats him. Um, and again, we're coming upon the theme of mistreated children. Mm-hmm. Um, woohoo is the appropriate response. It wasn't woohoo. Yes. It was mm-hmm. Oh, I, I heard different. woohoo. Okay. Very different. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's very different. Yes. Um, 
We have Adoniram. We have Georgie, um, a dog that is a dog that is saved by Adoniram, and also um, a rooster by the name of Ronald, who is also saved by Adoniram. Um, so the story actually opens on this boy Adoniram R. Smith, and um, he lives with his aunt and uncle, who are highly abusive to him. Um, and again, we're coming upon another abusive set of aunts and uncles. We had another, a previous book where we had an abusive set of aunts and uncles. And it's, it's kind of a similar thing to, you know, in fairy tales, the evil stepmother and how the stepmother is that role that keeps getting hit by that, that, you know, stereotype yeah. of mistreating the, mistreating whoever is left in their care. And I don't know if there's anything to that, but well, it's not. Um, it's, so at, it's notable that it's you know not the parents, it's not the father or mother who's the abusive figure. That's true, yeah. Um, but in any case, we have Adoniram who you know goes out to um, get something from his house, which is right next to a creek or a river, a big river, and um, he heads out to the summer house. And he saves this dog that's, you know, heading down the river. Um, right? He saves the dog, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He saves the dog that's, you know, being swept down this river. And he manages to get the dog to this summer house, this small little house um, that um, is, you know, part of the property right next to the river. Um, he The river then actually breaks over the bank a little bit and takes the summer house with it. So the summer house is flowing down the river and Adoniram also manages to save a rooster named Ronald that is floating around in the water as well. Um, Ronald is um, a rooster with an English accent that is a prize rooster that's won a number of awards and various shows and stuff like that. And they're kind of riding down the river in this house kind of like, well, we'll see where this takes us. And um, they have a little bit of misadventure there, but eventually they wind up floating into a, the downtown area of, you know, a little bit of a slightly less rural area. And they get to a department store and um, decide to wander inside. And who should they come upon but Jinx and Freddy? Jinx the mm -hmm. cat and Freddy the pig from previous books. And Jinx and Freddy are having a good time at the department store, enjoying the food and the other products, because the department store is abandoned due to the flood. And um, and so they encouraged Georgie and um, Adoniram and the Rooster Ronald to just enjoy themselves. And so they hang out there for a few weeks. Um, Freddy, by the way, was out and about with Jinx trying to promote his pockets that he was selling to other animals. So he was trying to sell these pockets, not with clothing or anything, but just pockets that the animals mm -hmm. could wear and keep things in. Um, but in any case, after being in the department store for a while, which Freddy notices right away that Adoniram has had a pretty rough <laughs> upbringing and doesn't even, you know, know how to react to jokes and stuff like that. Freddy, throughout the book from this point on, takes it upon himself to teach Adoniram how to have a good time, essentially, um, down to the detail of teaching him how to laugh properly and 
how do you know, actually enjoy himself. And so, eventually, they decide to leave the department store as the water dissipates, and um, <laughs> as they're heading out, the cops manage to get a hold of Adoniram, um, who is walking out of this department store with all this stuff. Um, the other animals get away, but Adoniram is taken back home to Snare Forks and <laughs> um, brought back to his aunt and uncle. And... Um, and so he's back at square one, but the animals managed to find him and managed to get him to sneak out um, from his aunt and uncle because they tell him that he would be very much welcome on the bean farm because um, the beans children, um, who they had adopted in a previous book, they're are they away at school? It's been a while since I've read this. Um, are are the beans children that they adopted away at school? You guys have to know. I feel like uh, there's something about them being away at school. Uh, so the beginning, the beginning of chapter five says Mr. and Mrs. Bean had been pretty lonesome after Ella and Everett, their adopted children, had gone away. But I can't find if it says like where they went or why. That probably was mentioned earlier then. Yeah, I'm trying to backtrack and see, but... Yeah, I think they had gone away to school or something. Yeah. I mean, you you can just, for for synopsis purposes, you can just say they've gone away. They yes. Away. Yeah, they went away to... Well, yeah. To somewhere. Okay, but in any case... The because they didn't manage them for to... this book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But in any case, the animals managed to scheme a way for Adoniram to escape from the Smiths, his aunt and uncle, and to come with them to the bean farm. And when they get back to the bean farm, everybody's super excited to have um, Adoniram as well as Ronald and Georgie to join the whole gang, and they get welcomed um, very much. And Mr. Bean is definitely happy to have or Mr. and Mrs. Bean are definitely happy to have um, another child to raise and to love and everything like that. Um, and the animals are also very much um, welcomed and taken in. Um, when they get back, they realize that there's a new character at the farm as well, and that would be um, Mr. Bean's brother, Uncle Ben. Um, and Uncle Ben is an inventor. He... <laughs> um, he was a clockmaker, and he lives in the upstairs of the barn. Um, at least that's where his workshop is. And he has been working night and day up in that barn on a new alarm clock that will have, or that would have firecrackers inside the alarm clock that will go off um, <laughs> whenever you need to wake up. And of course, there's an inherent problem in that because yeah, it's a one-time use sort of thing. Um, and. Freddy manages to help him out with this invention by having the firecracker exist outside of the clock so that when it's time for the firecracker to go off, it won't explode the clock. <laughs> Uncle Ben is very grateful for this, and it promotes this partnership between the two. That Uncle Ben works alongside with Freddy on various projects now, and um, the relationship that Ben has with the animals is a very good one. Um, 
So, in any case, now that there's this partnership, there's this problem that arises because they have a new boy, Adonai, room on the farm, but they have no other boy for him to play with or to hang out with or to have fun with. And so, um, Uncle Ben and Freddy decide, well, why don't we make a friend for Adonai Rum? And so they they make this automaton, essentially, or this um, this machine or robot, which is modeled after Adonai Rum. It looks a lot like Adonai Rum, and, um, and actually Jinx is recruited to do the painting because he's really good at painting, and he paints a face, the face on the um, child's robot, and it looks just like Adoniram. And so they make this um, robot child thing that can be, or that after a prototype walks into the lake and they realize that they need somebody to actually operate it a little bit more close quarters, they call upon Ronald, the rooster, to operate um, the new boy on the inside. So the Clockwork Boy is operated by Ronald the Rooster, who, by the way, has now married Charles's daughter, Cacletta, right. and is in the family, which Charles was, you know, of course, pompously concerned about having somebody in showbiz <laughs> being part of the family. But, you know, of course, you know, pompous Charles. Um, so <laughs> Ronald is the engineer for this new boy who is named Bertram. That is what... Um, Uncle Ben has named him. So you have Adoniram and Bertram um, that are, you know, the spinning image of one another and are now able to play together and everything like that. Um, there's actually a funny incident as Ronald is trying to get the hang of working um, working by rum where um, uh, Mr. Bean is not aware of this invention and mm. he sees this this kid causing trouble out in the middle of the night, and so he and he thinks that he's a chicken thief because Ronald hops outside of the um, machine <laughs> and he shoots at the kid, and the kid doesn't move even though he gets shot in the leg, and then um, the and then he shoots him again, and the boy goes running into the farm, and his head comes off, and you know, of course, mm -hmm. um, Mr. Bean is very, you know. Surprised by the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, in any case, over this period of time, of course, Mr. Bean and Mrs. Bean welcomed Aunt Iram right away, and they said, we need to get a hold of your aunt and uncle so that we can adopt you. And they don't hear back from the aunt and uncle for a long time, but then one day they get the letter that says, uh, no, we want our child back and we're coming to get him. And that's not great because they know that he was mistreated, but... There's nothing within the law that they can do. So, Mr. Bean, and this is kind of a little bit of a turning point in a little bit of relationship, I think. Mr. Bean goes to the animals and basically says, Hey, we can't do anything, but you guys aren't within the law. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> and in order to in order to keep them from getting out of Nyrum, you do whatever you need to. And so the animals concoct all sorts of schemes to keep the <laughs> Smiths from getting to the bean farm. Um, everything from, you know, having an army of skunks scare them off, to having cows blocking the road, to having a tree knocked down, to even when they get to the house, having a sign up that says measles. measles. <laughs> and, and, and when they get to the door, having another sign up that says scarlet fever. Um, uh. And we have a fun exchange because 
we have a fun exchange because one of them has not had measles before, so he's afraid to go in, and another one has not had scarlet fever before, so she's afraid to go in, and you have a fun back and forth of dialogue there. But in any case, they decide to leave the farm and head into town. Um, however, the the beans had told Adoniram and Byram to head into town and spend the day up in town so that when the Antonoko came that they wouldn't be around. Um, they spot Bertram just outside of a movie show and thinking that it's Adoniram, they swoop him up in the car and take him with Ronald inside. Mm-hmm. And so they have Bertram and take him back to the farm and when they try to spank him and slap him and smack him around like they typically do they find that it's not that enjoyable because he's made of metal and it hurts them far more than it hurts him I was um, I was I was getting some some real uh, Pete's Dragon vibes uh, on this bit we gotta build a sail right here you know there you go yes yes absolutely um but but they're finding that um that um, that Adoniram, Bertram, who they mistook for Adoniram, is now a lot more willful and not willing to do work, <laughs> and they can't really hurt him or anything, and they are becoming more and more perplexed, and when Bertram starts standing up for himself, then they're like, um, yeah, just get out of here, because you're not working for us anymore or doing what we want you to. Um, we have the scene where they um, come to give him the thrashing of his life, and he basically rebels, chases them into their own house, and he hangs Mr. Smith up from the rafters of the house and, you know, basically, you know, gets his own release because they are so threatened by him. Um, it's a fun little moment. Um <laughs> But in any case, he gets the adoption papers from them, no problem, and he hitches a ride home from a couple of people. We're going to be reading a little bit of that later with the one-liners. Um, Fantastic. But, yeah. Um, so he gets back. Everything is fine there. That's taken care of. Um, they, But the thing is, Georgie is, um, is still pretty sure that his owner was... Or who looked a lot like um, who's knocking? Oh, that's my wife upstairs. She's doing. Oh, okay. Well, let her in. Oh. <laughs> Great. <laughs> but in any case, wife, uh, you're on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! So, in any case. Georgie has been pretty sure ever since he met Adoniram that the boy that he belonged to looked so much like Adoniram that he could have been his brother. Mm -hmm. And so they want to look for Georgie's owner and everything because he's also a boy that's out on his own and would be a wonderful actual human playmate for Adoniram. And so they're like, how do we we get the word out that we're looking for um, this boy? And wouldn't you know, Boomschmidt's in town. Boom Schmidt Schmidt from the circus from the previous book, from Freginald. And um, they say, well, why don't we go to the circus and see if we can get some help from him? And um, Mrs. Wiggins and or Mrs. Wiggins mainly is the one that goes to the circus to talk to Boom Schmidt about getting in getting an advertisement out there saying we are looking for um, we're looking for this boy named um, Shoot. 
what's the boy's name? There's Adoniram, Byram, and uh, uh, what's the boy's name? Oh shoot! I just I just just saw it. He's uh, gone. Um, Adoniram, Byram, and um, shoot. Oh no, it is Byram. Yeah, is just Bertram Byram? and Byram are so interchangeable. <laughs> oh, okay, goodness. Bertram. Bertram is the robot. Bertram's a robot. Bertram, Bertram's a robot. Byram's a real person. Right. Okay. So, so Georgie, so Georgie. Oh, it's the title of chapter Byram. fifteen. Bertram, yeah. Byram, and Adoniram. Bert- yeah. So Georgie's owner Byram is um, who looks just like um, Adoniram. They managed to get an advertisement saying, "Have you seen this person, Byram R. and?" In order, since he looks just like Byram, they say, why don't we take a picture of Adoniram, stick him on the advertisement, so that, I mean, we have, you know, a good resemblance within the picture and everything. So they do that. The thing is, Adoniram goes with the beans to the circus the next night, and everybody sees Adoniram and they're like, hey, it's the kid. It's Byram. And everybody tries to get the boy, and... There, there's a big confusion. There's a wrestling match between, um, between um, Bertram and you know this guy that wants to wrestle, and um, it's a big circumstance and it's a lot of fun. Um, they get a lot of letters from, um, they get a lot of letters from all over the country regarding this boy Byram, and they decide to take on the local ones that seem to be the most likely. And so Freddy decides to go to an orphanage that was in the town for one of these places. He dresses up as an old woman to visit the orphanage <laughs> and try to get um, and get Byram out if Byram is indeed there. He wanders in on a trustee meeting, and the and the trustees at first want to kick him out, but then the richest, most powerful trustee on the committee says, um. This pig is the most fun that I've had at a trustee meeting in a long time, and we should just let him stay. So <laughs> this is so so so. Um, Freddie finds a good friend in Mrs. Church. Mrs. Church, this rich woman from Paris, who you know is very very well off, but she finds Freddie delightful and is you know a fun loving woman, um, and. Um, so they recruit her on this mission to try to find Byram as well. Byram is not at the orphanage, um, although he was there at one point, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he was at the orphanage at one point, but he left a while ago. And from what they can tell, based on the clues, he's been traveling up and down the canal mm-hmm. um, in New York. He's been traveling on the canals. Um, they get wind from. Or they get wind from a falcon who happens to stop in for a fish at the duck pond who says something about what he sees at an iron, he says something about, I swear I saw that kid just up in this town earlier today. And everyone's like, wait, you saw somebody that looks just like an iron up in this town earlier? And he's like, yeah. And so he gives them the directions. Mrs. Church takes a bunch of the animals in her car up to this town in order to find hopefully Byram. And they stumble upon a gypsy camp, and the gypsies kind of extort Mrs. Church out of her jewelry in exchange for 
by Rum, mm-hmm. who they find out was being held captive by the gypsies. And um, in order to get Freddy back, because they also took Freddy hostage, they play a little bit of mischief on the gypsies, spook them a little bit, and they get Freddy back. And so, happy day there. They mm-hmm. have Freddy, they have Byram, they have Adoniram. Everybody's reunited. And yes, it is in fact Byram, the same owner as Georgie. Byram R. Again, he has an R initial, just like Adoniram R has an R initial in his name. That neither of them tell anybody because it's too embarrassing of a name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the last and final mystery to figure out in this book is what does that R stand for? <laughs> and finally, finally, when they have the big party um, to celebrate um, the boys being brought together and Georgie being reunited with his owner and the boys more or less being officially adopted by the Beans, um, which Byram, by the way, takes quite a while to warm up to the Beans, but eventually does when he realizes that the Beans are adults that actually care for him. Right. And again, kind of a heartbreaking thing that Byram has not found any adults that he's able to trust. Um, but in any case... It's a happy ending because he's able to find that family and that belonging. And Freddy um, finds out a way for them to share their last name with each other because the big argument was always, well, I don't want to share my embarrassing last name if you won't first. And so the boys never wanted to share their last name with each other. But Freddy figured out a way for them to share it with one another, and they realized that, in fact, yes, they were brothers um, way back when, a long time ago. And... So, Long Lost Brothers are reunited, and it's a happy ending. Um, mm-hmm. And they even tell Freddy what the R stands for, and Freddy, um, Freddy is so tickled by what the R stands for that he laughs for a solid hour about it. But, again, mm-hmm. he doesn't tell anybody. Doesn't and the book clo- And the book closes of... Or the book, in fact, closes with the narrator saying, but he never told anybody else, and neither did the boys, and to this day, I don't know what it is myself. <laughs> so, and that's how so the book ends. Good. Yep. Uh, but, yep, a lot of stuff that happens throughout this book. Um, just like any other um, book within the Freddy series, a lot of things that happen, and. Oh, my um, goodness. And a bit to unpack. So, I've been talking for a long time, as I usually do when I give the synopsis. Um, so, uh, somebody else talk for a little bit. I, I want to say, just at this point, we've kind of traced this a little bit as we've gone through the series, but w- I, th- I think the plots are maybe solidifying a little bit. I, I don't know what the future books will look like, but this, I feel like, was the most straightforward, ongoing, consistent plot. Yeah, the How's most the like so far, the most. Uh, uh, oh, there was a word I was look- I had and then I forgot it. But like, it's the plot that least seems like it could be cut up into a series of short stories without losing yes. anything. Right, um, right. Like yeah. the thing that unified Freddy goes to Florida was it was all on their trip to Florida and back. But otherwise, you could chop it mm-hmm. up as you say. This yeah, one, it, like, it, it doesn't like have a, that journey that unifies it. Mm-hmm. The plot itself is the unifying element. Yeah, like those about those early ones. Even Freddy the Detective, to some extent, it's like yeah. you could have chopped them into three to six segments. And other than having to reintroduce all of the main characters, you could have published it as a series of short stories. Absolutely. Um, this yeah. this one you couldn't. This is. I agree with Michael. Like this is the first one. 
for whatever whatever else you might be able to say about the plot, uh, you could not do that with this particular mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. And and I would agree with you that Fre- or that Freddie the detective comes the closest of any of the previous books right. to having any sort of unity. But even as you said, you have like three different subplots going on at once, whereas this one. You could at most argue two, but it all revolves around Adoniram and him finding a home and him finding belonging and him finding that playmate and everything like that. And everything, you know, shoots off from that. It's it's a lot more unified. To me, Freddy the Detective almost reads like Walter R. Brooks doing like one of the, the Conan Doyle, like Sherlock Holmes short story collections where he has some... Like thematic unity mm-hmm. and some character development, but it like still reads like a discrete series of episodes that could have been published separately. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. and this one, without a great deal of of mangling and rearranging, uh, I don't think mm-hmm. you could you could do that. No, absolutely not. Well, and that kind of touches on a little bit of the the genre hopping that I was talking about earlier too. That Walter R. Brooks seems to be doing in these books. Um, you know, he's, you've got the detective stories in Friday the Detective, the um, uh, Sherlock Holmes type stories, all blended together in there. Uh, and then here, it's more of that, like, there's a little bit of that pop sci-fi, uh, not pop, pulp sci-fi uh, sort of stuff going on with this Clockwork Twin, but it's really just there as a device. Um, it's uh. To me, it also ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, pop, sulf, pop, pop sci-fi or pulp sci-fi, which turned out to be more of a tongue twister than I expected. Um, <laughs> either either of those designations works for me because it is it is both of those sure. things. Uh, it's it's certainly not serious sci-fi or hard sci-fi, but um, uh, it, it reminds me of like probably a pretty period appropriate reference, which is like Tom Swift books mm. or other books where it's like it's mostly an adventure story or a like right. how clever how clever is this boy story um yeah but like no, and that's some just it. sort of like slightly improbable or slightly technologically advanced like device for people to be clever around mhm yeah and and the the book really is about Adoniram um, the rest mm-hmm. of the animals kind of serve the story of Adoniram's adventures. But that um, said, unlike something like a Tom Swift story, mm-hmm. uh, Adoniram is not necessarily the clever one. Um, oh, sure. It's, it's the animals being sort of clever on his behalf. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, yeah, it, which is an interesting sort of twist to that structure. Yeah, um, that you get with uh, with that, and that's um, so. I I, I want to give some space for like I don't want to say complaint, <laughs> but possibly complaint, but also praise for this book in a couple of ways. I mean, we talked in um, Freddie and Fredginald uh, how really well done that was in reference to like the civil war and the, the yeah. racism of the south and stuff but now here we've got the gypsies being thrown into the bus yeah and i was just as even as josiah was like giving the synopsis i was like rereading that chapter 
And it's a really bizarre chapter, honestly. It it like, is. It feels mm-hmm. out of place in a lot of ways. Not okay. just because of the racism, but I, I agree. Well, well okay, well, and I mean to to like tie the out of placeness and the potential of racism together. Um, it really feels to me like Walter R. Brooks ripped a chapter out of like a different adventure story. Um, either from that period or even from like 50 to 100 years before. Um, it, it feels like he's taking from the same sources that like uh, the adventures of Tom Sawyer takes from when like Tom Sawyer references gypsies. Um, we okay. might be we might be going back as far as like the gothic novels of like the early 19th century, the late 18th century, mm. where you have these this trope of like uh, gypsies as like, uh, burglars or or other like like societally marginal figures who like figure in these adventures. Um, one of the classic road novels in English literature uh, is Tom Jones by Henry Fielding, and um, there's an entire section of that book where Tom Jones gets having gotten kicked out of the the British Manor estate that he was sort of adopted into, lives with the gyps- gypsies for a while. Um, and to me, like, a lot of this chapter almost feels like... And, and I I'm, want to be clear, I'm not accusing Brooks of plagiarism, but it almost <laughs> feels like a lazy, like, rewriting of some adventure story that takes place either in England or on the European continent. But, like, sure. maybe the intention was satirical. Um, I mean, spec- but the best artists steal... Sure. So, well, like, except, sp- except for Walter R. Brooks, gentlemen, remember, <laughs> everybody, everybody else the plagiarizes from Walter R. Brooks. <laughs> You're right. I, I, I forgot that Henry Fielding took a time machine to read uh, Freddy and the Clockwork Twin. Um, yes. We all know this. Uh, so, just, but just like, as a, as a quick, like, specific passage about what I'm talking about, when they meet the, the gypsy in chapter 13. Uh, and they're they're sort of on this this land, and the um, uh, the gypsy confronts them. Uh, Mrs. Church says, "I hope we are not trespassing. Is this your land? We are just having a little picnic." And the the man says, "Yes, it is my land as far as the eye can reach, and farther. It has always been mine, mine and my people's." And Mrs. Church says, "You mean you're an Indian?" So now we have gypsy and Indian as like two it, different right. problematic potential you know names for groups of people. Uh, And this man responds, No, my lady, I am Romany, which you call Gypsy, but you are welcome. Um, Which is, like, that... It's a brief section. It's a wild passage already. Because that means Brooks clearly knows what, like, the much more, like, correct, etymologically correct name for Gypsies is. But, like, he has this man say that this land has always been his and his people's. Um... At the same time, admitting that like this is um, in the, U- the United States of America at the time, like the only people who have land that goes back that far are you know the the Native Americans, right? Um, so like, is mm-hmm. he implying this? This almost stretches back to like a mythology about the lost tribes of Israel and and uniting yeah. that with like Native Americans. Like, are the sure. are the Romani meant to be that? Which I I sus- I think was. Speculated about the the Romani or the or the Gypsies was that they were one of the lost tribes of Israel, like wandering oh, Europe okay. and, and Asia, and 
Um, maybe like it, there could be some connection there, but it's so like it's not anywhere else in the text. So even that would be really bizarre. Like that feels here's, like a stretch. Here's here's my other thought about that. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's a little bit different from from that. But by by having this character say something so paradoxical and deliberately not resolve it. Yes. Uh, it's it's Brooks making this character just just being a butt. Yes. He's, like the character yeah. himself is acknowledging the stereotype yes. and living in it for his own purposes. Okay, that oh, yes. absolutely was also... That was probably my first thought, even before the other stuff I just said. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I agree that out of that passage, that's a valid uh, reading. However... Well, and it, it ties into this genre, too, of, of the adventure story, because yeah. you need that sort of character in an adventure story, but... It's going to be a stereotyped character, whatever you do, unless yeah. you invent orcs right. in Lord of the Rings, right? Well, and even orcs, <laughs> even orcs potentially have their problems, depending on how you. Oh, read potentially, them. depending um, on what you do with that. But mm-hmm. no, like so, like you've got to have that there. And so Brooks, I see him creating this here, right? And, and but acknowledging it at the same time, that would be much more convenient, especially because then it's like if this guy's a liar and he's just using this like marginalized people as like his his way to to do his con or, right. or whatever like that's a very convenient sort of hero and would fit with like sure brooks like what i've what i've read of him you know what i've what i've sort of closer to him so far however even that is problematic or, oh, yeah. or, or problematized rather uh if you hop forward a couple pages um to the description of this this uh so-called gypsy camp. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's the top of 214 in my copy. People were moving about, tending to the horses, cooking things over the fire in the middle of the clearing. They were dark, thin, quick-moving people, dressed in bright-colored clothes. Their queer, slanting black eyes seemed never to be looking at Adoniram. Yet he knew that they didn't miss the slightest movement he made. Um, that's, like, where that where everything we just said sort of doesn't work for me, because it's yes. like... You're now just like this is uh, yet again you're, almost you're seems, leaning into it. Yeah, it almost seems cribbed from like an 18th uh, or early 19th century like European travelogue where it's like, oh yes, this yeah. this people, which can be summed up in two or three adjectives, all every single one of them does this and adjectives. looks like this and believes I like this. I I did mean to say adjectives, but I'm no, I'm but I like adjectives better. Adjectives. <laughs> But it's, yeah, it's and just I mean, like, anytime anybody, anytime anybody says the phrase "the slanted dark eyes," yeah. it just goes like, "No, no don't, no, 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 okay. no. Okay. don't." No. Which not yeah, not only does that like trip our sort of twenty first century sensibilities, um, and and like I'm not saying that's wrong; that's a perfectly valid thing. But also, it does problematize the idea that this gypsy man is lying about like having a people or being part of a people like right like it seems like you're validating his self-description in the the description in the text no i i think there's a balance in there i i I think there there's some ignorance perhaps on brooks's part uh with just like i think he tried yeah but maybe not enough or maybe what was I, available to him wasn't enough. 
or yeah, something. Yeah, I, I genuinely think he probably was just like using, doing sort of a pastiche of older adventure stories, probably a lot of them set yeah. in Europe or England, and he just didn't like sort of think through how that would translate to, um, you know, to a, an American setting yeah. um, and, and time period. Uh, like, yeah. it would be, if, if we were real, if we were real scholars, like, what we'd do is look for references to gypsies in, like, other children's adventure <laughs> stories from this period sure. and see, sort of, compare and contrast and see what was hey, going on. No, I that's, sus- that'd be, like, a good master's or even doctorate thesis. Yeah, exactly. And right I suspect there. it would be yeah. pretty interesting and enlightening, but... It uh, would be interesting. I certainly haven't done that work yeah. myself, so... Yeah. Haven't, uh, haven't we already talked about... Haven't we already talked about how this podcast, years from now, somebody will stumble upon <laughs> and, you know, use it as material for their master's thesis? Yes, we, yes I think we have talked about this. I think we have, too. Uh, so, related to the, you know, 21st century sensibilities and stuff, um, th- this is a, an object of, of a little bit of praise, but... You know, close for for Walter Brooks. Uh, you, you mentioned in your summary here about how Byram, when we finally meet him, kind of distrusts adults a little bit uh, and needs some coaxing before he joins. Which Brooks kind of takes care of in this um, relatively rapid rapid way. Um, but also, you know, you've got Adoniram who's been dealing with abusive adults his entire life. But that's kind of a trope with these adventure stories in this genre specifically, right? And so he is pretty well uh, grateful for the, the stable adult family that he's he's granted and stuff. That doesn't exist <laughs> in the real world. That's that's not how it works. When kids go through that sort of trauma of abuse and things, Byram is much more realistic. And in fact, yes. uh, he, he is realistic uh, in, mm-hmm. in the way he's depicted in a lot of ways. Uh, on page uh, 233 in the end here, Mrs. Bean is talking to Byram uh, when he's you know decided he's not going to live in the house. And I like I want to give Mrs. Bean a hug here because mm-hmm. of the way she interacts mm-hmm. with him. Uh, so right right up at the very top, Byram is speaking. He says, "You you aren't going to make me come up to the house." Uh, Why no? Said Mrs. Bean. You don't want to live in the house, and in fact, I'd rather you didn't. So that's all right. You mean you didn't? You don't want me to live in the house? Well, you don't want to, do you? No, said Byram doubtfully, for it was a different thing if Mrs. Bean would rather not have him there. Always before people had insisted on his living with them, he began to wonder if maybe it wouldn't be rather nice in the house. Uh, and so, like, it's it's almost like this reverse psychology sort of thing, but, uh, like, she... Mm-hmm. It, it, the only thing that would have made that better is if she were honest and was like, well, if you want to, certainly you can, but whatever mm-hmm. you want, you know. Uh, that that's that's really the only thing that would have made that better. But honestly, like Byram's reaction to this um, abusive, neglectful upbringing is a lot more realistic than Adoniram's is. Uh, which mm. I'm not necessarily expecting that sort of realism from from this book. But uh, I, I I was I was pleasantly surprised by Byram. I was willing to take uh, the existence of Adoniram 
at face value in the genre of this adventure story and be like, okay, that's just, you know, how it is. But then you meet Byram, and he's much more realistic, and that gave me a greater appreciation for uh, Walter Brooks here and what he's doing Well, and I mean, the thing... The thing about Byram is that we don't actually see or experience the horrors that he dealt no. with. We don't we don't see any of the mistreatment or neglect apart from the fact that he was held captive by gypsies. Right. That's the only thing that we actually see. With Adam and Ibram, we have a little bit more of a first-hand thing with his aunt mm-hmm. and uncle. And I gotta say, it's really it's really kind of like it goes really dark for, <laughs> like, a lot of the things. I mean, I, I I, highlight within my book different things. Sometimes I highlight for, like, the funny lines and things like that. But occasionally I highlight for things that it's just like, whoa, what was that? And when they take um, Bertram, the clockwork twin that is operated by Ronald the Rooster... When they take him back to the house, thinking that he's out in Iram, and find that he's suddenly being willful and not wanting to listen to them or do work or anything like that. Which, by the way, Dr. Murdoch, who um, the rooster recruits mm. to be on his side, Dr. Murdoch is another hero of the book. That it's yes. like, oh, Dr. Murdoch, you're the best. Oh, I because love that, you, reco- you recognize what's going on, and you're, you know, going to, you know, um, help out, you're going to help out um, you're going to help out Bertram and also indirectly Adoniram with this whole thing. But in any case, it gets to a point with the aunt and uncle that they get so fed up with um, Bertram that they tie him up in the middle of the night when they think that he's sleeping and get him in position and then the uncle says this, and now said Adoniram's uncle reaching for the for the whip Get up on your feet, Adoniram. I've spanked you with hands and hairbrushes and basting spoons, and I've licked you with shingles and carriage whips and dust mops, and I've wailed you with straps and broom handles and yardsticks and old pieces of pipe. But after all that, you're just the same stubborn, good-for-nothing, lazy lummox you always were. So I'm going to give you the most everlasting, high-powered father and mother of uh, lambasting you ever had in your life. And then I guess you'll do as you're told. Take off your coat. What? What is this? Why is it in this book? Yeah, right? (laughs) It's just like... I mean, perchance this was some reality at the time that uh, was maybe a little more common than it is nowadays, or or at least more common in media. (laughs) Um, Not just in media, it was absolutely more common in actual reality. Well, I mean, in actual reality, as, like, I don't want to say it's not common in actual reality now is what I mean. Oh, sure. But as far as, like, societal acceptance or cultural acceptance, um, in this period, like, that kind of a, a discipline, to use the the most neutral possible word, perhaps right. unjustly, uh, was the the idea that you know if you were if you misbehaved, you would go down to the you know to the creek and pick yourself a willow switch. Like, mm-hmm. um, I live in a in a town that currently is almost a suburb. A hundred years ago, it may have been barely a 
barely a country town. It's always been <laughs> relatively close to a city, but mm-hmm. um, the, having volunteered over the years with, and especially you know, ten to fifteen years ago with uh, um, d- at nursing homes and like hearing stories from from the people there, you know, the the idea that like this kind of punishment was. There, that there was an acceptable spectrum, and the spectrum went a lot farther than right. would oh, be yeah. mostly socially acceptable now. Uh, mm-hmm. Is very common, like yeah. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering for 1930s if the mm-hmm. spectrum was this far. Oh like, sure, no, this is yeah. very yeah, clearly I, like at, on the farthest edge of the spectrum, if not a step beyond it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just like it's a more like Brooks's stand against this kind of yep. thing that he's clearly doing is well, yeah. m- much more socially risky at the time that he's writing than it would be sure. now. Fair enough. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Giving the kids but, a little bit of independence there. <laughs> well, and and just the just on a on a narrative. Uh, spectrum or whatever, like, making the guy giving out this kind of abuse like that, making him that much of the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, well, well, and I mean, the other thing that I kind of brushed over with the synopsis that kind of promoted the whole, well, we should find Byram because for all we know, maybe he's your brother, was after this encounter where they decide to give him up for adoption to the Beans, then the Smiths actually confess to him that they're not actually his aunt and uncle. Yeah. Um, right, right. And, 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 I mean, the quote is, but we're not your aunt, your aunt and uncle, said Mrs. Smith. And then in parentheses, I suppose we'd better call her that now, since she was really not Adoniram's aunt at all. Right. And, <laughs> and from then on, the, from then on, Walter R. Brooks does not refer to them as, um, Uncle Smith or Aunt Smith, but rather Mr. and Mrs. Mr. Smith. And Mrs. Yep. Um, and yeah, so, pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was pretty... Yeah. That was one thing that definitely stuck out to me. Um, another thing, of course, you know, with going through these books, since we're revisiting old themes with, like, abuse, but let's talk about um, communication between animals and humans. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes. So, so right away, so Freshenold was kind of a big old whoa. Wait a second. Any animals can talk to just anybody, and um, uh-huh. and and it's just like, what are even the rules? I mean, what uh-huh. people do understand animals, what people don't understand animals. Are there certain people that animals will talk to or not talk to? And I feel like we get a couple of things here that um, kind of stick out as, okay, there might be a little bit of logic and rules here. Um, Which, by the way, I love the communication between the animals and Uncle Bean. Um, Uncle Ben Bean. Uncle Ben. Um, his, His communication with the animals is so wonderful. Because, you know, he talks to the animals and everything, but he talks so briefly and in so few words. And, I mean... It's just fun, his exchanges that he has with the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things, um, going back to the chapter on the gypsies, there was a there's a quotation that stuck out to me. And that was when they come across the head gypsy for 
um, right at the beginning of the chapter that the gypsy is riding on a horse. And the horse looks at the other animals, um, and, and it... And, well, it says here, the quote is, And as he, that is the gypsy, bowed to the people, the horse looked hard at Georgie, the dog, and made a secret sign. It was a sign which every animal understands. It, er, understands. it meant, don't talk. This man is not a friend to animals. Mm-hmm. So it's this interesting code that these animals have that... Animals will talk to people that they believe are friendly to uh, to animals, and if yep. you are not perceived as a friend, then you do not get that communication. You do not get that privilege. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just an uh, interesting thing. I have to I have to add to that, um, and this folds into our discussion of like the gypsy tropes. Uh, there's some interesting stuff about that that little that little just sentence really. Um, one is that I believe if you go back into some of like the literature that we were talking, like some of the adventure stories and whatnot, like gypsies, at least in literature, are meant to have that sort of language among themselves. Is like you have the the itinerant travelers who sort of have hand signs and codes that that they understand that no one else does Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so it's interesting that like that almost supports the one reading of the idea that these aren't real gypsies these are imposters of some sort um Mm -hmm. the other thing about it and this is this is a little bit of a stretch but there's there's a, a freemason element to it um freemasons historically have a set of hand signs and and verbal codes and and so forth to like identify each other or communicate things uh, without... So the bean farm is really just a mason lodge? What? Yeah, um, that's that's what we've been saying this whole time. If you go back to all five episodes, you can unlock the, the codes and the clues and uh, so understand it. what you're saying is not only is Freddy the egg of, you know, all these other things, but Freddy essentially founded the United States. Yeah, he's also the al- national treasure and so forth. Yeah, he's also the alchemical egg, um, ah, which yes. the Freemasons know a lot about. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And as a reference, we're not going to explain anymore on this podcast <laughs> because it's either what I just said or it's forty-five more minutes, and no one wants that. You um, Freemasons out there can't see it, but I just made a bunch of hand signs to. <laughs> yeah. to- um, so that's a, the other thing that this recalls to me, especially for a book published in 1937 is the fact and this is this is as far as i understand and can tell is a real historical fact that um hobos and other actual itinerant travelers in the 30s of, of which there were of course many uh had a series of signs that they would um sort of mark secretly on gates and and around different places and they they meant certain things um and this this comes down... I, I mean, I've done other actual legwork on it, but partly this comes down to me from family lore because my great-grandmother uh, was, like, known as someone who would feed hobos and feed feed uh, uh, travelers in the 30s. And at some point, um, apparently they discovered on her gate this, like, mark in chalk that I think my grandmother, my, my great-grandmother's daughter, later figured out was one of these, like... Like they call them hobo signs. Mm. Um, so, like, 
I don't know if any of those cultural reference are meant in this or, or how much of a stretch any of those are, but like they certainly all seem current to me for for sure. nineteen. Well, in D and D, I mean, rogues know thieves can't, and that's yeah. essentially the same thing. So, well, and thieves can't comes into D and D from fantasy literature that in turn yep. is drawing from like from everything uh, you just said. Yeah, and, and also <laughs> some older traditions. You know, London yeah. thieves had their own cant stretching back at least to the Elizabethan era, if not further mm-hmm. than that. So, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a something that had occurred to me that I had forgotten. Yeah. And then remembered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we remembered. Well, have we have we exhausted the discussion topics that you guys had really for the book? Yeah. I think Yeah, those so. are all my soapboxes. Uh, all same. all of the soapboxes. Off <laughs> off in the corner. That you have I mean I could upon. build some new ones probably, but that's that's all the ones I had prepared. What what are you gonna what are you gonna do with all that soap? No, we're just building Listen, the boxes. We're not putting soap in there. I take a bath once a month, whether I need it or not. <laughs> Speaking of jokes from at least the 1930s. Okay. <laughs> wow. So. So let's move into. Um, I'm going to expand this a little bit. So these can be one-liners, or they can be just favorite moments of the book, like any funny scenes or any funny things that went on. So I wanted to start first off with um, some of the wonderful things with Walter R. Brooks's writing. Um, I talked about the closing line of his book and how it was, you know, a witty little thing. The opening line of his book is also kind of fun. Oh, once, thank you. <laughs> once there was a boy, once there was a boy about your age, and his name was Adoniram R. Smith. It's, oh my gosh! It's just yes. so good. <laughs> yes, this is this is the perfect opening for an adventure novel for kids. Like mm-hmm. it's for you. This this book is for mm-hmm. you. It, like that's the best way to say that. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he, the way he phrases it, obviously it's about a boy, which is, you know, right. you have to make a choice one way or the other, but he, he carefully phrases it that when he refers to you, you're not gendered. Right, no, it's a boy. There's a boy about, your, about age. your age. Yeah, it's so. almost like the age is more important than the, exactly. Than the kid. Exactly. Oh, just um, brilliant one but, line, brilliant first line to a book. Yeah. By the way, Ethan, how do you pronounce the name of this boy? Um, how do you? Pr- I've I've adopted the way that you pronounced it, and it wasn't the way that I originally pronounced it. Read read the first paragraph of the book. It says, "Pronounce it to rhyme with Uncle Hiram." Oh, there you go. Add an okay. Hiram. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. apparently completely ignored that, and I always pronounced it Adoniram. Mm-hmm. But, well, you were eh, wrong. Yeah, you, like text, textually, you've proven Tec- that I was wrong. Based. So I will, I will it, take that. Like, yeah, it's one of those things that I wish that I wish that J.K. Rowling, when she wrote the Harry Potter books, would have done this sort of thing with For Hermione. Hermione yes. Because because I gotta say, until wait, the movies until wait, the movies who? came out, Hermione. Until wait, the movies came out, half of I us don't know. didn't know how the heck to say her I name. I don't know what Hermione. Is. 
Hermione. Oh, Hermione. Oh, okay, why didn't Absol- you say it in the first place? Absolutely. Hermione was what I oh, went with when I read those books. My fifth grade teacher read the first, I think, first two books to us, and it was Hermione the whole way through. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For me, it was Hermione for the first three books until, uh, until like, either the movies or somebody pointed out it's actually Hermione. And it's like, what? Yep. <laughs> and, yep. Yeah. I mean, this is only because we've neglected our classical Greek education in this country. Yeah, because good. if anyone, if any of us grew up saying Calliope, we'd know exactly how to say Hermione. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, you know, listen to a Bruce Springsteen song occasionally or something. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, culture. <laughs> yep. I, I, got um, a, I got a one-liner to toss in there if I can. Yeah, sure. Um, it, yeah. It's on page sixty-nine uh, in my, and this is just like it's an example of something Walter R. Brooks does, and I think we've pointed this out before, but it's down at the bottom, um, where Freddie goes into the water here, and it says at the beginning of the paragraph, "You hardly ever find a pig who is an expert swimmer, but then you hardly ever find one who is a good detective." Freddie was both. <laughs> like it, it's it's one of those things that like you you didn't need to have Freddie be a good swimmer, but right. here he's just sure Freddie is a good swimmer and he introduces it in the most magnificent way possible. Just just referring to the internal logic of the series exactly. Like if you're if you're with me so far, you have to accept this. Don't exactly. argue. Exactly. Yes. Don't worry about it. You, you've oh. read four books already, so here you are. <laughs> you're committed. <laughs> you have to come along with me farther. You're exactly. stuck on this journey with me. Yes. Just like um, Green Arrow going back to the island for the fifth time. Right. Exactly. Oh. At at the top. At the top of chapter two, one very bad thing about being a rooster is that you have to get up at sunrise and crow to get the other chickens up. <laughs> most, roos- most roosters don't realize that the other chickens would get up anyway, and they feel that their job is a pretty important one. <laughs> so good. It feels like it's a callback like- to book one, right? I yeah. mean, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charles. well, and I mean, that's the, that's the opening right. scene for book one. You have Charles getting up. And, but yeah. it's it's yet another one of those wonderful uh, variations on yes. Brooks just like saying things about animals with utter authority mm-hmm. that he either couldn't possibly know or he is one of he is the human who can actually talk to animals. Right, right. Those are yeah. the only two options. Well, it, 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 so we talked about this this animal thieves can't right that. Um, <laughs> It, 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 it's established this sense of mystery, and I can just see it for kids. If I were the, this kid reading this book for the first time, I would be one of those who's like, oh, he's in on it. He knows right. these signs. I got to pay attention and learn these signs so I can talk to these That's, animals too. Right. And and understand them and, you know, know yes. their mannerisms. And because, mm-hmm. yeah. He's just Walter R. Brooks is just this fount of knowledge for everything mm-hmm. animals and why they are the way they are. Um, I have another one for pigs for describing Freddy in chapter four. We have for Freddy had um, yeah for Freddy had turned slightly red and was frowning at his friend. He didn't have a very good frown because he was pretty fat. And when he drew his eyebrows down, they just closed his eyes, and he looked as if he was asleep. But Jinx knew what it meant. 
I love that because I've had friends who it's just like, you can't take them seriously when they're trying to be serious. And it's this self-perpetuating cycle because someone trying to be serious, uh, their their absolute kryptonite is you not being able to take them seriously. Mm -hmm. And if it's like an honest reaction, then they get so mad and that accentuates your not being able to take them seriously and then, yeah, it's just self-perpetuating. And it's yeah. it's a sentence to or like a couple of sentences there that you didn't need to say. You could have just said Freddy frowned and yeah. accomplished yeah. essentially the same thing. Sort of, but not uh, sort of, but not with the magnificence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, there, there's this wonderful bit of dialogue, and I I gotta say I love Mrs. Mrs. Wiggins more and more as she as she has opportunity to showcase her common sense and everything, she's actually the one that comes up with the logic of, well, why would you have the firecracker inside the clock? It should be outside the clock. Um, She's the one that says, within conversation to Freddy, and also, um, let's see, leading to to the one-liner that Hank has, um, that's kind of what I'm leading to, but Mm. she says, well, good grief, said Mrs. Wiggins. If the firecracker blows the clock to pieces, don't put the firecracker in. That's just common sense. (laughs) Yes, said Freddy, but it's part of the clock. You have to put it in, or you hadn't got an alarm clock that shoots off a firecracker. Mrs. Wiggins looked puzzled. You've got your argument wrong end, too, Freddy. It's when you put it in that you haven't got the clock. My stars, if I want to shoot off a firecracker, I don't swallow it first. Not if I ever want to shoot another. Um, <laughs> now don't now don't you start shooting firecrackers, said, Fre- said Hank. One around the place is enough. Hey, Freddy, what's the matter? For the pig who had been looking thoughtfully at Mrs. Wiggins suddenly leaped up, shouted, I've got it, and dashed off toward the barn. The others looked after him. I expect he's got another idea, said the cow, said the cow placidly. I don't know where he gets them all, said Hank. In fact, I don't know as I know what an idea is. I never had one. I never had any myself. I'm thankful to say they look kind of unpleasant to me. Make you run around and yell. Folks are better off without them. <laughs> And I mean, that's just the sort of thing. I mean, we've uh, read enough books that it's just the sort of thing that Hank would say. It's right? Hank. I'm, it's Hank. It is through. Hank. It is so Hank. Uh, um, all right. So my one that I want to do is to turn us a little bit darker once again. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, oh, good. And I, I'm actually really glad that Josiah, that you sort of specified that it doesn't have to be one line or or whatever. Uh, because even before you said that, the one that I wanted to do was just a picture. Um, oh, and in mine, it's uh, uh, page 137. Uh, I don't know across editions if it's quite the same. Yeah, let me um, let me see the picture. Here. I probably... I, I have pictures in my edition, too. Uh... Oh yeah, where he's hanging up, where he's hanging yes. up, Mr. So, Smith by the rafters. Yeah, yeah. This is in. It's well into chapter mm-hmm. eight, uh, and yeah, it's it's the bit where uh, the clockwork boy has has supplanted the the real boy. Um, you see how I cleverly use the word supplanted there. Uh, Very good. You know how things are more clever when you point them out. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, and and we've we've finally reached the sort of crisis point of the horror story contained within this novel, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. because like as like 
Josiah, you you correctly pointed out how horrifying Mr. Smith's threat or threats are, um, and how like again, especially when you take that out of context, it's just sort of like horrifying words that someone can say, yes. and like why is this in a children's novel? But part of the technique there that Brooks is using, I have to assume consciously, is that to to have a villain get punished. You first have to set him up for the punishment. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, and so like the horror of the scene strikes us as like not completely unjustified or, or completely terrifying mm-hmm. uh, because of that. It's and satisfying. Then, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is. Um, it is comeuppance, and comeuppance is you know, however terrifying it is, it's justified. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and this makes me want to go into a whole digression about horror tropes and, and what mm-hmm. is actually horror versus um, other genres, but we won't do that. We'll just say that, like, just this picture, like, I, I uh, as I've probably mentioned on this podcast before, I sometimes just summarize the wilder parts of these books to my wife, who is aware of, like, the concept of the series but has never read any of them. And so I very briefly summarized the scene to her, and I showed her this picture, and her reaction was just like, what? <laughs> just like, this is a 30-year-old woman who's not, like, particularly squeamish, but she was just like... And, mm-hmm. and the, the picture is so good, and I, I have to assume the it's illustrations good. are original to the novel. Like they're, yes. They're, it's it's um, all Kurt Weiss. Yeah. Um, and, like... You get the clockwork boy, and, like, he has that, like, clockwork smile that's, like, you can you just understand that that's how he's going to look no matter what he does, but he's just sort of holding up Mr. Smith, who's, like, as you know from the text, essentially begging in terror. Because, like, again, as terrifying as his threats are, um, if we want some actual one-liners or, or text here, uh, um, you have, like... Uh, I thought I marked it. Um, oh, I guess, I guess, uh, no. Shoot. Uh, well, first of all, um, you have this little exchange. Let me down, roared Adoniram's uncle. Uh, I was only whipping you for your own good, which is like classic Ah. abuser talk there. Um, and and followed up with other classic abuser talk. It hurt me worse than it did you. Yep. Which in this case is very true. It's it's, <laughs> it's, it's accurate. Bertram goes yeah. ahead and points out in like almost I guess the, it did. the biggest like that. That's just like the moment of the sci-fi horror movie where like everything sort of comes to a head. I guess it did at that. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point the ant says, "We'll promise not to whip you again. We'll do whatever you want us to." Um, mm-hmm. Well, and the husband the- says we don't want to make you do anything you don't want to do. Uh, and then that's the point at which he says we'll even let those beam people adopt you uh, if you say so. And uh, which, which is just like he's torn. Like this, the the climax of this this story arc is him torturing the aunt and uncle into giving him what he wants. Yes. Well, um, not torturing, but terrorizing. terrorizing. Or terrorizing, so, yeah. Terrorizing, yeah. Sure. But it's it's like, you'd never have that in a modern kid's book. And, like, yeah. you'd have to push pretty hard to have that in, like, a modern adult book. Um, 
But like again, as as far as comeuppance goes, like he he's a he's essentially speaking the language that they have told him they speak at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, the, and and I mean, of course, as as we know from Josiah's summary, like we they've done everything else to uh, the the animals that is have done everything else to create this situation without resorting to terror. Right. Um. Mm-hmm. So there's like, I I don't want to I don't want to push it quite this far, but you there's like a connection you could make between like the plagues of Egypt, or yeah. or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. It, well, it's, it's it, the same it, logic. It uh, culminates anyway. in a deliverance, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's there. Uh, it, well, and <laughs> highlighting the the thought of of this as like a horror story within the novel, I really like that. I mean, Walter Brooks mm-hmm. named the place. Snare forks, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. that's a horror story. Yeah, yeah. that's a really right good point. Snare yeah. forks. Yeah. It's great. I I want to <laughs> like create something horror that's based mm-hmm. in snare forks. <laughs> that's wow. wonderful. Um, another one-liner. Another one of those bits of dialogue that's like you didn't need to put this in here, Walter. But thank you for it. <laughs> thank you. Um. um <laughs> Freddy's just hanging out with a couple of the dogs, and um, when they see when they see, um, let's see, what is it? Uh, <coughs> when they see Adoniram coming toward them, George's tail began to vibrate, and Jocks gave a couple of dignified thumps on the ground. You dogs are awfully lucky having tails that you can wag," said Freddy. "It's such an easy way of being polite. You don't have to say." <laughs> How do you do? I'm glad to see you. You just let your tails do it for you with a couple of wags. You know, when I was little, I spent hours trying to wag my tail, but I couldn't move it. It never changes its expression at all, except to come <laughs> uncurled a little when the weather's damp. What good is a tail like that? It's ornamental, said George. Or said Georgie. It adds something, Freddie, really. It sort of finishes you off like a little flag. <laughs> Finishes me off all right, said Freddy. It's like the period at the end of a sentence. It shows where I come to an end. <laughs> and and that's it. <laughs> it's just like... Yes. Thank Absolutely you. Thank you for that bit of dialogue. Uh, inessential, but so essential. Uh, one that I... I love the entire scene with... Uh, um, Miss Threep... And who's the other, the other oh, lady? Church, um, church. Yeah, Mrs. 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 Church. church. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I could quote that most of that chapter, including the title "Freddie Becomes a Trustee." It's, I oh could my gosh. quote like most of it as like a one-liner, quote unquote. Uh, but the one, the one that I just chose, again, semi-arbitrarily. Actually, well, there's a couple, but um, the first one that I chose them arbitrarily was when uh, uh, after Mr. Waldemar um, mm-hmm. has has uh, implied that that Freddie and his in his trustee getup is looking for the poorhouse. Freddie calls him out on that, uh, and Mr. tries to run interference, uh, but. The, the head trustee says, I did say that. I'm a plain, blunt man. I say what I think. <laughs> um, 
And Freddy says, then you think a lot of foolish things. They may, there may be several reasons why my clothes are queer, just as there may be several reasons why you are so fat. I may think it is because you eat too much, but I wouldn't say so unless I knew. Just because you have a gold watch chain, I wouldn't say that you stole it unless I was pretty certain. Like, <laughs> just vicious. Like, this normally right. pretty sedate, like, classy, it, erudite, like, soft-spoken pig has just, like, been crossed one too many times by this man and just chooses to use every single bit of that wit to tear him apart. It, it, and, like, it is the Churchill, madam, okay, I may be drunk. Yes. Thank yes. you. That's what I was going to say next. Absolutely that. Because I, I know Churchill was like around in thirty-seven. He certainly wasn't as famous as he is now, or as he would be a couple years on when he he became prime minister of England. So I, I it did make me wonder, like, if Brooks knew his Churchill at all, uh, or if this was like a case of independent invention. But it is legitimately Churchill saying, "Madam, in the morning I shall be sober, but you shall still be ugly." Yes, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's it's just like it's honestly so good either way. Like it's good if it's a Churchill quote, and it's good if it's not. Um, uh, the yeah. old, the the other one along a similar vein, a couple pages later, is when Freddie meets Mitz Threep's dog, uh, and and again, Freddie just like vicious for almost no reason, but hilarious. Um, where where or is it? Uh, let's see. No, no, it's uh, Georgie who he is pretending to be his dog. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and and Freddie just goes, he means well in reference to Georgie, and he's very affectionate, but he's not very bright. Uh, he was going on to say more, but Georgie gave him such a grim look that he decided not to. Yeah. And it's just such a good like, again, animals interacting with each other, just like, mm-hmm. uh. You know, they have their own language that goes on whether the humans acknowledge it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that Walter R. Brooks has done as as he adds more books is that he continually references the previous stories. Uh-huh. Um, this one-liner that I have does that, and it also showcases Mr. Bean's, like, while Mr. Bean is a kind man who loves his animals and wants the best for his animals and is willing to do outlandish things for his animals, he's still practical. Mm-hmm. Um, the animals had all gathered by the back door to see Bert- or to see Bertram presented to the family, and now several of them uh, started after the boys. But Mr. Bean called to them to stop. You animals mind your own business. You're going to have plenty of chances to look at Bertram without chasing after him now. What fun do you think Adoniram will have fishing if there's an animal hiding in every bush? I know what it was like that time you all were playing detective and couldn't move a blade of grass without, and I couldn't move a blade of grass without finding a pig or a rabbit under it. Leave him alone. And he picked up his hoe and started for the garden. Yes. And it's just like making reference to that other book and mm-hmm. just like making sure the anim- animals aren't being a nuisance. Yes. Um, Oh yeah, and 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 I just flipped to this very next page um, when it's talking about the Smiths coming to get the to get Adoniram. 
Now, this part of the plan would probably have worked all right, and Aniram's aunt and uncle would probably have been so thoroughly scared by the behavior of such wild animals that they would never have ventured into that part of the country again. But they had thought there might be trouble in getting Aniram back, so they had brought along a gun. They weren't very nice people. <laughs> just, just that added sentence. They weren't very nice people. Trying to see if there are any others that I really needed. Oh, oh, Ronald, Ronald. When when the when the hornet goes after him to um, tell him about the report from the farm. When he get, when Bertram gets captured by um, the Smiths and taken to Snare Forks, then you have this hornet going back and forth, um, mm. delivering messages to Ronald and. Ronald is very concerned about leaving Kekleta behind, his newly wed um, wife, and um, he's and he's he says, um, "I haven't been married very long. One can't desert one's bride um, practically at the altar, you know, and go careening off in search of adventure." Oh, I talked to Ke- or to Kekleta," said Jacob the wasp or hornet or whatever. She said she thought it was just wonderful of you to do this for Adoniram. She said she thought you were terribly brave and you'd have such marvelous adventures to tell her about when you got back. There never yet was a rooster that couldn't be flattered into doing something he didn't want to do. Ronald (laughs) puffed out his chest and tried at the same time to look modest, which is practically impossible. (laughs) Oh, I say, he said. Nothing brave about it, you know, old man. Line of duty. Have have to do these things. What uh, thought it was brave to me of me? Huh? And yeah, uh, that's uh, good. So Ronald fits within Charles's family just fine. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's another like conversation or set of characters that seems like it's from a different genre of book or a different set of books, but like. Yeah. Comedically, it works just fine. Right? Works great. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. This was one of the themes that I wanted to talk about earlier. Um, can we talk about the the virtue of diligence? Oh. Oh, man. The, when, when the reward is given for bravery, mm-hmm. and then all the animals are now motivated by getting a reward. Yep. <laughs> They, they they all want to get the reward and that's what the motivation is for being brave and um, and so they're like well well what if we're not necessarily brave when we're trying to find Byram what if we what if we work really really hard at it can we get an award for that and everything like that and um, they talk about like the virtue of diligence and everything like that and after you know pestering Uncle Ben about um, that award and everything he finally decides to make an award for diligence and everything, but then they're talking about it, and um, Mrs. Wiggins is the one that makes the insightful observation. I tell you what's the matter, said Mrs. Wiggins. Most people want to be thought brave, but they don't much care about being thought diligent. Or take it the other way round. Call any animal a coward, and you'll make him madder, or madder and a hornet. But call him lazy, and he'll just laugh. I don't know why that is, but I've seen it happen over and over again. 
It's harder to be diligent than it is to be brave, said Mrs. Wokus. That's why. You can be brave for two seconds and that's all over. But to be diligent takes anywhere from a month to ten years. And it's just like, wow. Yes. Way to, way to just, you know, drop, drop these virtues into, yeah. Yeah. I wondered how much of that, you know, came out of the depression. Uh, at this time too. That, um, well, there's there's a in. there's a universality to that too, though. Oh sure. Uh, mm-hmm. To you know, to quote uh, George Washington, <coughs> "Dying is easy, young man. Living is harder." Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm sure that's a direct George Washington quote. Yes, uh, <laughs> Lin Manuel Miranda in Hamilton did directly quote George Washington there. Yes. Um, but Did he actually? No, I have. Well, okay, not to okay. my knowledge. I, I mean, I, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he did. I well, mean, he, he did. He did do his homework. Um, he, sure, yeah, but, he he quoted him in other places. The uh, yeah, the whole you know vine and fig tree passage is directly. Anyway, where this is not the Hamilton fan cast. Um, but no, it, it, there's there's a there's a universality to that idea. I know I've encountered it. I'm trying to remember. There's some other. Uh, there's some other famous piece of literature where I've encountered that idea. Um, probably more than one. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, some some I want to say some piece of 20th century literature, that probably postdates Freddie, but predates Hamilton. So that's our time window. But this idea that like. Uh, uh, young people often want to, like, find something to die for, but the the idea that um, living for something is is actually a much more difficult task. Uh, it, it's almost a, a like a theme in classic literature. Um, that that recurs over and over, and again. Like, I wish I could think of some of the uh, the classical antecedents for that, but um. well, I mean, and it's all it's all over the place. The idea of diligence being uh, being a lasting thing that is to be held higher than the person that you know for a moment is in it. I mean, if you, I mean, if you want to go. Another Revolutionary War reference, uh, Thomas Paine, the yeah. summer soldier versus the winter soldier yeah. um, type thing. Um, and so you have that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is like quite a, quite, quite a theme to be just sort of dropped into the, uh, uh, you know, into a, a kid's novel. <laughs> mm-hmm. To say the least. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I have a bit of A.A. Uh, a. Milne dialogue. That's what I. That's what I tend to, oh. you know, call call some of the dialogue that happens between the animals. That's like the nonsense dialogue. That's mm-hmm. um, the kind of dialogue that shows up in like Winnie the Pooh books by A.A. A. Milne, where you know they have semantic conversations that are just nonsensical. Um, mm-hmm. You have you have the talk between Boom Schmidt, Mrs. Wiggins, and. Um, Leo the Lion um, about the word conference. Well, well, I guess we'll have to go into conference about this, said Mr. Boomschmidt. 
Where's that, said Mrs. Wiggins. <laughs> oh, dear me, it isn't a place, it's a state. Like, uh, what is it like, Leo? Like being in love, said the lion, or in difficulties. Or, now now you're just being confusing, said Mr. Boomschmidt. Good grief, being in love or being in difficulties. Why, they're entirely different. Not entirely, said Leo, but chief, I was just illustrating. Well, you're not supposed to illustrate, not when you're in conference. Now, I called the conference to order. Anybody got any suggestions? No? Then what game will we play? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> what? Well, that's Boomschmidt. I mean, we <laughs> yes. observed that in Freddy and Reginald. Mm-hmm. That's, that's Boomschmidt. Well... I feel like we have, like I said earlier in the episode, this is our fifth book that we've read, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have gathered enough um, insight from these books to have a little bit of an informed ability to rank mm. the books so far. So I would like to put this question to you two. Of the five books we've read, if you were to give me your number one, your number two, and your number three, mm. what would they be? And you can give a brief summary as to why. Um, yeah, uh, so my number one, I think uh, it, it, it's got to come down to the fourth book in the series, Freddy and Reginald. That's, that's still my number one. That book is just so good. It, it it covers so much ground, and it's just wonderful in so many ways. Um, that's that's pretty much all I can say about it. That's number one. Uh, number two uh, is pretty close. It's Freddy the Detective is my number two. Um, it, it does seem to be, at least so far, the iconic Freddy the Pig book. Uh, if only because Freddy kind of takes center stage in that one the way he doesn't seem to in any of the others so far. So knowing this as the Freddy the Pig series just might color that a little bit, but he's right there at the center um, of that plot, and his character develops so much in in that book. So that's that's a clear number two for me. Uh, and my number three is the original. Freddy goes to Florida, just laying all the groundwork for everything to come after, and it it seems evergreen to me. Uh, Freddy goes to Florida, so that's my number number three. All right. Well, I'm going to be contrarian and, and mm-hmm. count backwards. Oh. Um, and start with number three, and leave you people in a little bit of suspense. Uh, so number three, though now. I will agree with Michael, for me, is uh, also Freddy Goes to Florida. Um, it'll probably stay, depending on um, what, you know, uh, arbitrary things strike me as <laughs> as we move on, but uh, it'll probably stay close to, like, close to the top, I would say. Partly because it's, like, in that great tradition of road mm. stories and road novels um, from, like, Don Quixote to Chom Jones to The Adventures of Huck Finn, um, like you know, it, it's whether whether it's a literary classic like those is something a, a different consideration. But like, just as far as being in that that adventurous spirit and that um, uh, 
uh, uh, oh, there's a term for it, like a, you, like even the the episodic nature of it is is like uh, picaresque in that picaresque uh, mm-hmm. uh, framework is, um, I do I do love that, and um, that will paper over a multitude of of uh, uh, other considerations, more negative considerations. Um, second for me is probably this one, uh, Freddy and the, the Clockwork Twin, uh, partly because as opposed to, like, the picaresque thing, it, like, is the most coherent, uh, mm. um, narrative, I think, that we've had so far, um, and then number one is still gonna be Freddy the Detective, and part of that for me is, is me recovering my position as the the nostalgia boy in this podcast because <laughs> that's like the first Freddy book I discovered and it's you know it, it will always hold a special place in my heart and even if I thought like objectively some of the other Freddy books were better uh I think this one would still Freddy Freddy the detective would still just just uh be number one or close to number one probably always mm-hmm. Ethan letting subjectivity leak into his rankings. <laughs> <laughs> um, much much as I agree with Michael and a lot of the things he said about Fregenal, but um, we can't have four number ones. My ranking is number two. Just to be contrary. Because you start with number one and you start with number three. I'm going to start with number two. That's a choice someone can make. <laughs> that is a choice one could make. Uh, number two. I am going to say that my second choice would be... Um, actually, this... Mm, no, no, not this book. Hi, Sarah. Um... I would say that my number my number two choice would be, um, yeah, this book, uh, The Clockwork Twin, and partly due to the coherent plot. But again, my my favorites with these books because what I look forward to the most with these books are, first of all, the witty things that Walter R. Brooks says, but also the moments, like. The memorable moments, like when I think about different things like the ending of the Civil War <laughs> or or Freddy not being able to recognize that this baby rabbit is in fact the rabbit that he's looking for <laughs> or you or, you know, any any number of um, these scenes that come up um Throughout, I am all about the big moments, and so some of my ranking is all about like how often do I have these big moments and how witty are these things. There are a lot of great moments in Clockwork Twin, um, from Mister Bean trying to take out the the Clockwork Twin to the comeuppance of the Smiths getting their justice to the wrestling match at the mm. at the fairgrounds. Sick. And and everything like that. There were just a lot of good moments, and also I have to agree with the coherentness of the plot. It's it's nice to have that, and it's nice to have that you know directness going through, and also a lot of great new characters that were introduced to this book. Um, so that being said, that was my number two. 
My number three would be Freginald. Again, definitely ranks within that top three of the great moments. I mean, you have to love the Civil War ending. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Um, and I mean, a lot of a lot of the different things. I mean, the the business with having two Louises and getting Reg, or getting Freginald his name. Um, the whole business between Hackenmeyer and everything. Leo with his perms. So many great things in that book. My number one, I have to, I have to give it to Freddy the Detective, mm-hmm. um, for for two big reasons. Number one, it has so many of those memorable things throughout the trial scene, the prison scene where you have Charles, you know, just living it up in prison. Um, you have, you know, just before that, the scene where you have the animals committing crimes right in front of Freddy in hopes that they'll go to jail. Um, you have the you have the train convoy of the rats, and and Simon the Rat is my favorite villain so far. He yes. he is he is my absolute favorite villain, and I love my villains. And so mm-hmm. um, that's those are some of the reasons why I would say that Freddy the Detective is my number one. Awesome. So yeah. So we have had a pretty long one this time, um, but. <laughs> Um, before we conclude, I believe that there are some people that we would like to recognize. Yes, we've had a, a, a few comments and, and um, contacts uh, on our website. Uh, so I'll just mention a few and kind of summarize their points. So Randy C. Uh, comes to us uh, from the uh, Friends of Freddy uh, group um, that... Uh, is we've mentioned them in the, on the podcast in the past, uh, and he he contacted us, uh, looking forward to listening to the podcast. So I, I hope he's had a chance to listen and is enjoying it. So thank you, Randy. Uh, also, Alice T uh, has reached out as well and is enjoying the the podcast uh, quite a bit. Uh, she she does say in reference to Freddie goes to Florida. Uh, that sometimes an alligator is just an alligator, but we are all entitled to our opinions. So <laughs> we'll, we'll take that uh, as, as a, a, a the, very valid comment. In the future, I will do my uh, two-hour special on uh, portrayals of minority <laughs> characters and adventure stories from <laughs> yeah. the early 20th century. Your, your rebuttal. <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my, two, specifically. my two and a half hour rebuttal, yes. <laughs> yes it, will, it will be three hours long. <laughs> now look what you did, Alice. You got him started. <laughs> Good. Uh, and then uh, finally, Alan S. Uh, has uh, left a couple of comments. Um, he says that he encountered Freddy uh, as uh, as a youth uh, in his school library in 1967. Uh, read Freddy the Detective first, and then read the rest uh, of the books all in order through the school system. Uh, and has um, uh, very much enjoyed the the podcast uh, and and hearing our thoughts on it as well. And looks forward to uh, in reference to the Freddy the Egg uh, or the Chicken. Um, looks forward to when we will discuss uh, Freddy the Politician uh, and reference to Animal Farm by uh, George Orwell. So uh, that, uh, that 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 has piqued my interest anyway. It is also um, our next book chronologically. In it the series. is our next book. Yes. Mm. Also, I uh, I tried to do what the name the name you just said, Alan. Alan. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, I tried to do what Alan did um, through the public library system, but I was not very good at like figuring things out chronologically. So, ah. as I think I've mentioned, even in this episode, I instead read sort of a scattershot, somewhat in order, but not really uh, reading of the the Freddy series. Mm-hmm. But my my ideal my theory was that I would would read them all in order one day, and you know here we are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> well, as you guys said, our next book is Freddy the Politician, mm-hmm. and so greatly looking forward to that one, and. Um, Hopefully, hopefully the editor will be more on the ball with getting things edited and out in time. Yeah, like, My apo- like what do we pay that guy for? <laughs> right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, 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 edit, the editor has, within the past several months, bought and moved into a new house and also has been, you know, has been, you know, preparing for the arrival of a new child. Josiah, Josiah, it sounds like the editor is making excuses to you. (laughs) You need to sit the editor down and have a firm talk with him. Probably should. Give him the beating of his life. Wow, okay. (laughs) I would like to to go on record as saying that that is Michael's advice and no one else's. (laughs) The only advice that I'm giving is to the editor for the editor. Good. That sounds like something that'll right. hold up in court. Yeah. Yep. Especially animal court. <laughs> animal court. I mean, mm-hmm. I, if they're going to throw me in that jail, I'll take that <laughs> Let joy be unconfined. <laughs> Let joy be unconfined. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Well... To everybody, good night or morning or afternoon <laughs> or whatever whatever it is. One day we'll teach Josiah how podcasts work. Uh, isn't it that whatever the time of day it is when you record, that is automatically the time of day that they are experiencing? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Never mind. I, you, you so, got it. So, you good got night. It. Good night. Unless you're okay. on the other side of the earth from us. True. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. In, in which case, good day. Um. <laughs> All right. Ow. But okay. Bye, everybody. We love you. <laughs> <laughs>